I am Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. The question really is, are Democrats now out of moves when it comes to trying to salvage Roe v. Wade? For all the speeches we've seen, all the rallies that we've seen since the draft opinion leak, tonight, Democrats seem powerless to come up with a response that would do anything to buffer the impact of a potential Alito ruling. President Biden preaching a short time ago that if the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade, other landmark cases that guarantee rights like same-sex marriage and contraception, well, they very well could be next. He also went further, ripping the Republican Party as, quote, petty and extreme, saying it is, quote, cowered by Trump. Well, he's obviously angry with Senate Republicans, all of whom blocked, uh, voted to block the Women's Health Protection Act this very afternoon. As you recall, this was the bill that many Democrats hoped would ensure Rose protections. The president vowing, quote, we will continue to defend women's constitutional rights to make private reproductive choices as recognized in Roe v. Wade. And my administration will continue to explore the measures and tools at our disposal to do just that. Well, tonight it's not immediately apparent what those tools and measures could be. A Democratic-controlled Congress seemed to have gotten nowhere close to 60 votes. In fact, they didn't even get 50. And while the president does blame Republicans, keep in mind a member of his own party did side with the GOP because he believes the bill went way beyond keeping the status quo. It is not Roe v. Wade codification. It's an expansion. It wipes 500, 500 state laws off the books. It expands abortion. And with that... That's not where we are today. Now, Joe Manchin has described himself in the past as, quote, pro-life and proud of it, unquote. Meanwhile, the Senate's top Republican went further with his argument against the bill. Legislation would allow abortions of viable babies in the ninth month with no waiting period or informed consent at the hands of a non-physician Taxpayers could be forced to pay for it, and Catholic hospitals would be forced to perform it. So here's what the bill actually says. It says there will be no prohibition on abortion prior to fetal viability, which is around week 23 in the trimester framework. That was already the law of the land under Roe and the subsequent Supreme Court ruling in Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Now, after that point, It says that abortions can't be prohibited if a medical provider makes the call that, quote, continuation of the pregnancy would pose a risk of the pregnant patient's life or health, unquote. That's also the law under Roe in the combination of Casey, and the language actually mirrors what many states already have on the books right now. But you see, this bill was not the only proposal that was on the table. In fact, moderate Republicans Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, well, they're pushing their own bill, this one called the Reproductive Choice Act. Now, their legislation would also codify Roe, but on much narrower terms. Senator Schumer said last week that he's not looking to compromise on something so vital. So the question is, what's left? Do you stand on what you see as the principle when ultimately the final product of getting a vote secured to clear it will result in nothing? I mean, be clear, what we saw on the Senate floor today was a bill that many predicted would actually die before the first vote was even cast. Yes, it did put lawmakers on the record. That's true. That was one of the goals. But many are now asking, 
What was the good of the symbolic vote, it seemed, if the result was going to be the same in the end? Now, of course, there's pushback. It was more than symbolism. It was an attempt to try to actually get the legislation passed. But some think that House Democrats did, in fact, try a, well, maybe a symbolic Hail Mary in the other chamber of Congress, with progressives loudly marching over to the Senate. My decision. My decision. My decision. My decision. But, you know, even with this, what we're seeing on the screen here, Democrats in Congress, they didn't appear to be all on the same page. Apparently, Senate staffers who didn't know what the noise was about in, well, a post-January 6th world, they briefly called in the Capitol Police. A small but perhaps symbolic example of a party fighting for a united, effective response on any front. And now, Democrats will have to decide if the abortion rights battle is a winning campaign strategy for the fall, even if Roe becomes history by then. On that notion and thinking about campaigning and, of course, what will come if, in fact, Roe v. Wade is overturned, I'm joined now by Jose Garza, who is the district attorney for Travis County, Texas. And all eyes have been on Texas for quite some time on the abortion front. He joins me now. Jose Garza, thank you for being here today. You know, you and I share something in common as both being prosecutors, myself a former one, you obviously a DA. And one of the big concerns, if this were to return back to the states, and obviously it would go back to the states, but it would go on the desk of a prosecutor. And you've already been quite clear that if you were tasked with the role of trying to enforce a law like this, you wouldn't do it. You wouldn't prosecute those who would fall under that violation. Tell us why. Well, I was proud to join um, prosecutors across the country to stand up and make clear that we will not be prosecuting women for seeking abortion services. We will not be prosecuting healthcare providers for providing those services because the number one job of any district attorney, of any prosecutor, is to keep our community safe. And criminalizing and prosecuting women who seek abortion services would do the exact opposite. We made that pledge because we do not want to see women suffering or dying at home, um, too afraid to go to the doctor for fear of being arrested or prosecuted. Um, we have a, a glimpse into what, it, what things were like before Roe. Um, and to revisit that reality would be terrifying. Um, and so I'm, I'm proud to stand with prosecutors to ensure that um, women and families will continue to be safe, um, to seek the health care services they need in our community here in Travis County. You know, Attorney Garza, it strikes many people as the idea of um, perhaps counterintuitive that a prosecutor would engage in a kind of civil disobedience, which really is an exercise of your discretion. Let's be very clear. You have the discretion to prosecute cases, to not prosecute cases. But I wonder if from the perspective of one of the things and the concerns that people have had about this particular um, case being overturned is it would create a patchwork of different states where some would have more rights than others, depending upon geographic boundaries. It's entirely foreseeable, I guess, that in some areas of Texas, there might be DAs who are more willing to pursue these charges. And so perhaps a bit of a luck of a draw for which type of prosecutor one gets. When you think about this and just the pragmatic approach to being able to even enforce it, I know one of the concerns that you have shared is that I don't know how you prosecute 
without running afoul of one's privacy interests, without actually getting the evidence you would actually need to meet your burden of proof. Is that one of your concerns as well? Absolutely. When you think about what it would take to prove these kinds of cases beyond a reasonable doubt, it would require law enforcement and prosecutors to delve into the personal health care choices of women and families all across this country. Um, that patchwork that you described would create instability all across our nation. And we know that instability is what makes us less safe. Um, I also fear greatly that it is um, working class women and working class families who would suffer the most as a result uh, of this kind of uh, draconian return um, to, to pre-Roe times. It would be women and families um, who don't have the means to travel to jurisdictions where they could seek healthy and safe abortion services that would suffer, and that would make our community less safe. Now, just so we're clear, just the, the weight and gravitas of the statement that you're making, along with other prosecutors really across the country who some are in areas where they're in a state where they don't have the trigger laws, even if Roe v. Wade were to be overturned and returned to their state, it likely would not have the same effect of what you're saying. Texas, of course, has that, what we knew from last summer, is this very controversial ban that's not the one before the Supreme Court. That's the Mississippi Dobbs case, but the one involving even being able to have a form of a bounty, um, a form of civil vigilanteism on being able to identify those who may have aided and abetted an abortion. What has been the pushback for somebody in Texas, like yourself, a DA, elected official, by the way, in terms of having this very clear statement about what you will not do. Has there been a lot of political pushback for you? Well, as I said, our number one responsibility, my number one responsibility is to keep our community safe. Um, I am incredibly fortunate to, to represent the people who live in Travis County in Austin, Texas. Um, and they know that our community is safer when women and families can seek the healthcare services that they need. As I mentioned, we know, um, we have a, a sense of what life was like before Roe. Um, we know that uh, more than a thousand women a year died because of unsafe uh, abortion services. We know that, that worldwide, um, that somewhere in the neighborhood of 23,000 women die every year because of unsafe abortion services. We know that if we push these healthcare services into the shadows, into the black market, that that is where the criminal element thrives. And so I'm not um, worried or focused on the politics or the pushback. My job is to do what keeps our community safe um, and not prosecuting women who seek abortion services will keep our community safe. Jose Garza, thank you for joining the program today. It's very interesting to think about, particularly in a world where we're talking about those who are Soft on crime is the allegation. We'll be curious to see how this pans out ultimately across the country. Listen, the Biden administration is also trying to deal with the pain of inflation and an even scarier problem for families, the baby formula supply crisis. Catherine Rampell joins me with what go got us here and really some potential answers. Is Washington, D.C. willing to consider those? That's coming up.
So in the wake of the leaked Supreme Court draft opinion, which is not final, we're told by the Justice of the Supreme Court, uh, John Roberts, Democrats vowed to fight for abortion access. But as expected, today's effort to codify Roe v. Wade has failed. So what does that mean for their fight now? Joining me now is Democratic Senator Catherine Cortez Masto of Nevada. She actually co-sponsored the bill that was, in fact, defeated today, and she is running for re-election. Senator, thank you for joining me tonight. It's important to hear your voice in particular on this issue. You know, Senator, one of the things that people have been talking about is this word symbolism and the idea of, was this a symbolic vote that was an exercise in futility? You say no. It was about actually trying to codify Roe v. Wade and trying to get those votes. How do you see it tonight? Well, I think it's the same way. L- listen, Laura, I, I think we all agree uh, in, in this sense that the, the individuals who voted for that legislation tonight is it's about women's rights. It's about giving women and trusting women in this country to make these decisions uh, and uh, uh, pro-choice decisions that we know for the last 50 years women have been living with uh, when it comes to their reproductive freedom rights. That's what this is about. So it's really a clear distinction of who's going to stand for women's rights and stand up for women and who isn't. Uh, And that's really what's at stake right now. And I know in my race in Nevada, I come from a state that in the 90s codified Roe versus Wade. And we have in, in, in that vote alone, almost two thirds of the voters supported Roe versus Wade, and they still do. And this is, this is crosses party lines from Republicans, Democrats, and independents in my state. So this is about trusting women and giving, making sure we're not taking away women's rights when it comes to their health care. And unfortunately, we have seen Mitch McConnell uh, and far right extreme Republicans don't trust women and they want to take away their rights. Senator, are you concerned, speaking of the idea of bipartisanship, are you concerned that maybe the vote, by fact that it was 49 to 51 with, in fact, Senator Manchin joining with Republicans, does this give some fodder and, um, and, and ammunition for the Republican Party to say, hey, not only did it fail, it failed on a bipartisan basis, undermining what you're saying. What's the retort to the notion that this is not to be considered a bipartisan defeat? No, this is clearly what, what what we have happening here, and we've seen it from Mitch McConnell, who's been very clear about this, and our uh, previously uh, defeated a uh, president. Uh, this idea that they need to take a women away women's right to choose when a majority of this country, when uh, I know in my state we have protected women's rights. So what's at stake here is electing uh, candidates and individuals who are going to protect a woman's right to choose, and. It shows that this election is so important. Listen, I have an opponent who's running against me. I'm no doubt um, uh, would uh, take a woman away a woman's right to choose, would actually support Mitch McConnell's decision to uh, pass some sort of federal legislation that would ban a woman's right to choose and further restrict a woman's reproductive health care in this country. Uh, it, there's no doubt about it. So it, elections matter. And At this juncture, we need to make sure we are uh, electing candidates that respect women in this country. It's interesting, Senator, about that notion of Senator Mitch McConnell. He did try to walk back, as you know, a little bit of that notion of talking about a nationwide abortion ban, which would make sense given the fact that, well, if the Alito opinion is to be believed, it's trying to return to the states the ability to have electorate, members electorate actually weigh in on this. And having a nationwide ban would really remove that particular premise of that opinion if it's to be believed. 
Do you see that statement of Mitch McConnell as him saying the quiet part out loud in a way that gives some leverage to those seeking reelection or Democrats in general to say, hold on, he has just said what he would intend to do. Believe him the first time. Well, believe him the first time and look at what's happening across the country. If if the Supreme Court's draft opinion becomes the law, there are already 18 states that have passed trigger laws that would outlaw abortion. And uh, there's no doubt uh, over half the states would follow and further restrict abortion in this country. And that's just getting ready. Uh, Those states are really following suit of the Supreme Court. Mitch made it very clear that he would really uh, follow, further follow um, and pass some sort of federal ban restricting women. I mean, I've got my colleagues are already in a back room somewhere, Republican colleagues that are looking at how to restrict abortion in this country in the hopes that the Supreme Court will overturn Roe versus Wade. That's why elections matter. That's why it is important for so many people to come out and stand up for women and women's rights and our right to choose in this country. Again, it goes back to why don't we trust women to make this decision? Why doesn't Mitch McConnell trust women to make this decision on their own? Well, Senator, I know you appreciate the legality issues that are at stake here as well, given your background on these notions. And I I do, I know you've expressed concerns about um, data privacy or how one, if it were to be overturned, how would one have their medical health privacy and their data privacy actually maintained and preserved? Is that something to consider going forward? Well, here's a a couple of things that uh, I absolutely know. If this this is overturned, we already have a Texas law that pits neighbors against one another and, and turns them into bounty hunters to, to uh, uh, really focus on those individuals that they think are violating women's rights. Um, and it, it, again, this is an issue that will just take it to the next level. Think about this. Everybody that uh, has a phone can be tracked, geolocation. And that information is tracked and where you go can be tracked and actually is collected and can be used to determine where where you are and if you are seeking healthcare or not. I mean, it goes one step further. And these are things that we should be thinking about uh, because if we already have bounty hunter laws in this country because of what Texas has done and the Supreme Court refused to strike it down, we're gonna get even further down the road here. And, And again, at the end of the day, this is about a woman's right to choose. Why are we taking away Uh, the rights of Americans and individuals in this country, particularly for women, when it comes to the reproductive freedom rights. Senator Catherine Cortez Masto, thank you so much. Thank you. So as we've discussed, the Senate vote didn't go the way Democrats hoped, which means that if Alito's final majority opinion is anything like the leaked draft that we saw, Roe v. Wade is likely to be struck down. Now, you know that 26 states are certain or likely to ban abortion the minute that happens, leading to a whole patchwork of abortion laws in this country. In fact, several already have trigger bans that would criminalize abortions, possibly even for the patient. Now, look, as a former federal prosecutor, there are so many questions that come to mind, but it it begins with this. How would one go about enforcing a violation of that law? It's the prosecutor's job to charge and prosecute those who break the law. We obviously have a burden of proof and we have to prove our cases beyond a reasonable doubt, which requires evidence. We have to rely on an officer to identify a lawbreaker and then arrest that person. And I'm curious as to how will that arrest happen? Is it an anonymous tip? Is it monitoring surveillance cameras at medical offices? Is it word of mouth? 
as you talked about with Senator Cortez Masto, already there are reports of a firm selling location data of people who have visited abortion clinics. And there are growing concerns that maybe even menstruation tracking apps could have been subpoenaed to show when a pregnancy starts and stops. Could that be collected to help prove someone has had an abortion? And how would prosecutors, I'm I'm asking this seriously, how would prosecutors obtain medical records without violating privacy laws? Would those trump? Will they have the probable cause search a woman's home for medication, perhaps, or obtain her personal gynecological history records, such as when she was expected to ovulate or proof that she was no longer or at one time was pregnant? Will it be a violation of her Fourth Amendment rights that if against an unreasonable search or seizure? Do we get a search of the medical office? Do you question the nurses and receptionists about the patient's medical history? How about our statements to her doctor or to a relative or maybe a spouse? Would spousal privilege attach to those statements and who would own that privilege? Will I be required to have a practitioner perform a medical examination to confirm that she was pregnant and has had some sort of medical procedure to terminate the pregnancy? I mean, is there any way to have this crime on someone's record, so to speak, without violating medical privacy laws in the long run? Would she be required to consent to an examination or will there be a Fifth Amendment issue related to her rights against self-incrimination? I I can tell you, having been asked if I was pregnant when I've just been bloated, how will I overcome the possibility of a false accusation? And let's just say I am able to get all of the information to bring this charge. How will I prove that her pregnancy was not the result of a rape or incest? Because if she's in a state where there are exceptions for either one of those, it's going to impact my case against her, right? Do I have to have a mini trial beforehand to prove that she was, in fact, a victim before I can keep going with her own prosecution? Or will the burden be on her now to prove that she, in fact, was the victim after I've given my case in chief? And let's say I can actually prosecute. How do I avoid dear my jury? Would we be inclined to strike every juror who is pro-choice or pro-life? Do I inquire as if it were a case of somebody being a victim of a crime themselves or a police-involved shooting, whether they or someone they know has had an abortion? And what do I do with that answer as a voidering prosecutor? And what is the sentence that I would be asking for? Is it akin to a homicide as it is in some jurisdictions under their trigger laws? a misdemeanor or manslaughter? And what about a prosecutor who we've already spoken to who exercised their discretion not to pursue the charge? Or what if one prosecutor in the office decides to prosecute women, but another declines to do so? Is it, in fact, luck of the draw for the accused at that point? Not exactly equal application or justice under the law. All these questions, I'm wondering, does these render the law as symbolic, perhaps, as today's vote has been accused of? You see, overturning Roe, it may put the focus on the judicial branch. And today's vote puts the focus squarely on the legislative branch. But as a prosecutor, I was part of the third co-equal branch, the executive. And our job was to enforce. So how are prosecutors supposed to do that? It may end up back in the States, but it's going to land on a prosecutor's desk. So how exactly do we define 
or pursue justice. Exactly. We'll be right back. So the price of everything keeps going up. Those looking for a positive spin point to the fact that they aren't going up as fast. Prices rose by 8.3% compared to last year, according to the latest Consumer Price Index. And that's down from the 8.5% annual increase in March. That's maybe little consolation when everything from the cost of gas and food to used cars and a roof over your head is still way higher than a year ago. Talk about how we got here and what can be done with CNN economics commentator Catherine Rampell. Look, Catherine, we know in part how we got here, right? I mean, higher demand. You've got constrained supply, with its equal shortages and price spikes. But I think what people are really wanting to know about, more importantly, is what can really be done about it? I mean, are Biden's hands tied? Can Congress do more? That is the million-dollar question. I mean, the, the main tool that is available is the Fed raising interest rates. It is the Fed's job, by law, uh, to promote maximum employment and stable prices. They have been raising interest rates for exactly that reason. Uh, the goal is to make it a little bit more expensive to get a mortgage or a car loan or um, you know, have a higher interest rate on your credit card bill, et cetera, which should tamp down demand a little bit. Uh, hopefully not so much that we get a recession, but that's a whole separate question. Now, in, in terms of what the president can do or Congress can do, there are some limited tools available, but my view is they've sort of been reluctant to use them. There are things like repealing some of the Trump-era tariffs or getting our immigration system, our legal immigration system, more functional again. So far, they've been dragging their feet. Why? Uh, I guess they see a lot of political risk. I think for too long, Democrats kind of dismissed the economic and political threat of inflation itself. They were sort of in denial about all of this. They did some window dressing kind of things like uh, ranting against corporate greed or directing the FTC to investigate anti-competitive behavior. Things, you know, that, that sounded nice, that didn't really do very much. I think they were really worried about upsetting organized labor, for example, if they repealed some of these Trump tariffs um, or if they, uh, you know, they might get a accused of open borders if they made, again, the legal immigration system, which was severely broken by Trump and then COVID, if they made that more functional again. So they haven't really pushed hard on those levers that are available. And they've they've instead leaned on these other things that are, are not as effective. And now they're finding themselves uh, a little bit tardy in trying to figure out how to make a difference here. I mean, they've done some other stuff, too, trying to get the ports more functional, right. et cetera. But again, not making a huge difference. So is there an inevitability about all this if you don't focus on the fixes rather than trying to assign blame or have the sort of umbrella talking points that sound good on the campaign trail, but ultimately don't lead to what you're talking about in terms of the results? I think there is a sort of fatalism amongst a lot of Democrats right now regarding inflation and the risk that it poses for them in the midterms. Again, there's not a ton that they can do. So I want to be very clear about that. The president doesn't control prices. He doesn't control gas prices. He can make some changes on the margin that can maybe help a little bit. At this point, um, even those little things that are still available to them may not kick in soon enough uh, to make a big difference heading into the midterms. They really have to hope that the Fed gets rates high enough, again, that inflation comes down, not so high that we have a recession, which would also doom them in the midterms. But it's a little bit out of their hands. It's out of the Democrats' hands at this point. Well, you wouldn't know that by the political talking points about these issues of whose hands it actually is in. Catherine Rampell, 
Thank you so much. Thank you. Let's get personal for a second on the infant formula shortage emergency. This could actually be a life and death situation for many families. This mom just wants to feed her baby and she's not alone. We're gonna talk to her next. Look, there's desperation rising tonight for parents all across the country. They're trying to feed their babies. Look at what you're seeing on the screen right now. In eight states, do you realize that more than half the baby formula is out of stock? There are actually 28 other states that are looking at out-of-stock rates between 40 and 50%. Now, the problem is there's an already tight supply chain that's breaking down after a recall of three brands of formula that were forced a production facility to, in Michigan to actually shut down. Now, that plan is still waiting on the FDA to approve them to reopen. But in the meantime, mothers like my next guest, Carrie Fleming, are spending hours hunting for any formula they can get their hand on and paying extraordinary prices to do so, just to feed their babies, like her three-month-old daughter, Lenny. How beautiful is this little girl? Carrie, I'm glad you're here tonight. We should be talking about, frankly, this beautiful young daughter of yours. But instead, you're out trying to find formula just to be able to give your daughter the nutrition she needs. Tell me about what it's been like for you. A three-month-old daughter, this should be the time you're taking a thousand pictures and having nothing but joy, and you're trying to figure out how to feed her. Tell me about that. Hi, Laura. First of all, thank you for having me on to share this. Um, this has been one of the scariest things as a parent to encounter, not being able to get the formula that my daughter needs to survive. I can only imagine. I'm a mother of two myself, and I remember the times I can see the emotion in your eyes, and I can, even though my children are older, I remember the desperation of figuring out if your child was getting enough of what he or she needed. And to know that this is about not having what you even need available. How much time are you spending? And it's not just you, it's coworkers, it's family members who are all trying to help you get this formula. What do people need to know, in particular members of Congress and the government, about what's this doing to your family and families like others? This is a massive issue. This should be the nation's number one priority because we're literally right at crisis mode. I'm learning that People are just now finding out that there's a shortage of formula. I've been dealing with this for like a month and a half, and I have been begging and calling all over the United States to try and get formula for my daughter. And I not only want to be able to feed my daughter, I want the rest of these families to be able to feed their babies. It's pretty shocking to think about this conversation happening between you and I in the United States of America. The idea of when any country, frankly, it should never be happening, but particularly in a country like ours where we pride ourselves on the ability to provide and the idea of being able to have the nutritional values available. What is it meant to you to see what you're going through? And, and the prices, by the way, it's, you're talking about hundreds of dollars for nominal amounts of formula when we're just trying to keep weight on our babies, particularly at that age, what does it meant to you to know that this is happening in the United States of America? To know that this is where we're at, that 
you know, we can go without a nice fancy dinner for a night or two, but our babies literally do not have the formula that they need to survive. It's, it's unbeknown to me how this could possibly happen in our nation. Why is this happening? How do we not have a backup plan to make sure that this never happens? Like, what are we going to do to help get our babies fed? Carrie, how much formula, if you know I'm asking, do you have available? I mean, how what you have in your current supply, how long could you realistically feed your daughter? Right now, I have about three to four weeks. And truly after that, I don't know what we're going to do. We are literally having to look at alternatives for my daughter, which, you know, I don't even know how her little body is going to handle those, to be honest. Alternatives like what? I mean, the idea of what? Are you trying to portion out or dilute? We know recommendations are not to dilute, to have concerns about purchasing things online at times. Is this going through your head? Of course it is. Like as any parent, I just want to be able for my baby to get the nutrition that she needs. And I've already been trying to cut back a little bit on how much formula I give her. But I am looking at other alternatives because she has severe allergies. I'm possibly looking into breast milk banks and looking at goat's milk alternatives. I mean, these are literally situations I am facing every single day, knowing that I have a small supply and that other families out there have even less than I do. And this just can't continue. Carrie, this is the story of one mother and one beautiful little girl. But as you have said, the fact that this is happening anywhere and, and multiplying it in my head by all of the parents who have these concerns, I just, as a mother, I remember so much what it was like to hear my babies cry because they were hungry and trying to get the bottle in their mouths fast enough. I'm so sorry you're having to deal with this. And I certainly hope that those listening and watching if this is a revelation to you right now, I hope it's not for those who are in positions of power to be able to do something about it. Carrie Fleming, thank you so much. My best to you and Lenny and your family. Thank you so much. It's really unbelievable to think about this. And coming up, Elon Musk vowing to let former President Trump back on Twitter if he buys the site. All kinds of questions of who can say what online, how Twitter will change, and how billionaires are eyeing maybe more political influence in tech. Kara Swisher knows Silicon Valley as well as anyone, and she's here with us next. I have no idea how to fly the plane. That was actually the message to air traffic control from the passenger who was on board. This after his pilot became incapacitated in the cockpit of a Cessna. Despite having no piloting experience whatsoever, that passenger managed to safely land that plane with the help of an air traffic controller who rushed to his help. Pete Montine has the story. I've got a serious situation here about pilot. Uh, John. It's okay. I have no idea how to fly the airplane, but I'm in The voice you're hearing is not a pilot, but a passenger radioing for help. Audio captured from Live ATC details the communications between the plane, a Cessna caravan, and the control tower at Fort Pierce in Florida. 333 Lima Delta, Roger, what's your position? I have no idea. I see the coast of Florida in front of me, and I have no idea. 
Air Traffic Controller Robert Morgan was on break from working in the tower when his colleague said he needed to come back fast. There's a passenger flying a plane that's not a pilot and the pilot's incapacitated. So they said we need to try to help them land the plane. Morgan is a 20-year veteran controller, but also a certificated flight instructor with 1,200 hours flying experience. What was the situation with the pilot? He is incoherent. He is out. Number three, Levin Delta, Roger, uh, try to hold the wings level and see if you can start uh, descending for me. Uh, push forward on the uh, controls and uh, descend at a very slow rate. Controller Morgan had not flown the specific type of plane, so he pulled up this photo of the layout of the instrument panel and talked the passenger through it step by step. I knew the plane's flying like any other plane. I just had to keep them calm, point them to the runway and just tell him how to reduce the power so he could descend to land. Data from FlightAware shows the flight's path. The first challenge to controllers, locating the flight and pointing the passenger-turned-pilot to the airport. Three Lima Delta, maintain wings level and uh, just try to follow the coast, either north or southbound. We're trying to locate you. 6-4, you guys located me yet? I can't even get my nav screen to turn on. It has all the uh, information on it. You guys got any ideas on that? Number uh, three, Lima Delta, uh, Palm Beach is a, uh, he's a, instructing me that you're uh, about 20 miles east of Boca Raton. Just continue northbound over the beach and we'll try to uh, get you some more further instructions. Morgan's instruction paid off, guiding the flight to a landing at Palm Beach. Aviation experts call it a remarkable feat that left other flights listening in stunned, including a commercial pilot waiting for takeoff. Did you say the passengers landed the airplane? That's correct. Oh my gosh, yeah, no. No, great job. No flying experience. We got a controller that worked them down, that's a flight instructor. After the landing, Morgan left the tower and went out to the ramp to meet his newest student pilot that he taught to land without ever getting in the plane. I just feel like it was probably meant to happen. This story to me is so unbelievable. I remember when my own father got his private pilot license and was practicing and had the hour logs and all these things. And I cannot imagine the idea of having that cool demeanor have that happen. I mean, the idea that not one person seemed to be screaming. I can tell you how I would be on the plane, by the way. But the idea of the cool demeanor coming back from a break, being able to be talked through, you're on the coast off of Florida. I mean, it's unbelievable to think this actually happened and then to actually see it land. I think that that commercial air pilot just summed it all up. The idea of, oh, my God, great job. I got to tell you, I mean, look at this landing. I can't even remember the last plane I was on commercially that maybe had that smooth. But it's unbelievable to think about that. And what a story. We'll be right back. Wow. Another important story that we're following tonight, the House Select Committee is investigating um, the January 6th and it's still finalizing its witness list as we speak right now to figure out who is going to, in fact, be able to um, testify publicly. We're learning more about this as the first hearing is less than now a month away. It will be a broad overview of the 10-month investigation and set the stage for more hearings. Of course, the big question is, what was then-President Trump doing as the riot unfolded? Sources tell CNN the presentations will likely feature video clips from that very day, as well as some of the nearly 1,000 interviews the committee has conducted behind closed doors. Among the witnesses whose testimony was videotaped, Donald Trump Jr., Ivanka Trump, and Jared Kushner. 
But a source says that at least one fact witness, so to speak, who has been deposed by the committee behind closed doors already told the panel they will refuse to testify publicly if asked. Among the witnesses expected, top aides of former president, vice president Mike Pence, including his former chief of staff, Mark Short, and former general counsel, Greg Jacob. It's unclear if the committee will ask Pence to appear for public hearings. But people familiar with the investigation say they would very much be surprised if he indeed testified. Thanks for watching, everyone. I'll be back tomorrow night. Don Lemon Tonight starts right now. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.